millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast. Now, I'll indulge in a small bit of personal history. Many, many moons ago, I was an engineer. I studied engineering in UCC and worked at it for a few years. Then I switched to journalism. As a friend of mine noted at the time, the intelligent quotient in engineering probably went up with my departure, just as that in journalism may well have gone down with my arrival. All of that is by way of introduction to my guest today. One of my classmates in UCC studying civil engineering was a man called Dan Troy. After finishing college, Dan got work in this country, which was rare enough in the year we graduated, 1988. Most of us had to go abroad. Anyway, after a few years working in sites in the west of Ireland, Dan realised that he had a calling to the priesthood, and he joined the order known as the Columban Fathers. On graduation, he was quickly sent to China, where he has been since now for over 20 years. He lives in Wuhan, which of course is where the COVID virus originated. On a recent visit home, I caught up with him and he had some fascinating insights into what missionary work is today, life in China and what it was like in Wuhan in the early phase of the pandemic. Okay, Dan, we're here in Dalgan Park and um, you're home on a break from China. Must be a small bit strange, totally different worlds coming back just to, to experience that, is it? Or did you still have the memory that it doesn't make it that big a, a leap even after all these years coming home? I'd like to come home, Mick. Um, it's great to come back and, uh, you know, to walk around in the mild temperatures of an Irish summer, even if it's raining. Obviously, Ireland is very different to China, but yet it's good to come home and meet family and friends and catch up on what has happened in recent few years uh, since one hasn't been at home. Funny, you mentioned climate, and I suppose that's the thing people don't really think about with China. Do you have very hot summers there in, in, in Wuhan? Where I live in Wuhan, yeah. I mean, it would be up to 40 degrees. Uh, so like a, a summer in the middle of the day in that city, it's humid, it's hot, and in general, people stay indoors. And just yeah. giving people an idea, I, again, people always get, I, I think anyway, certainly myself, getting your head around the size of China. How big a city is Wuhan? Uh, Wuhan has about 12 million people. And I suppose before the pandemic, it wouldn't have been known in too many places outside of China. But yet, you know, it's a, even with 12 million people, it's considered a second tier city. So like it's a mid-range city as, as things go in China. It might be a, a Limerick or a Galway by our, our standards yeah, here. Yeah. I, I mean, just uh, like here in Ireland, a city of a million people is big. And we have one of them, Dublin. In China, cities of a million people or more, there are 200 of them. So again, it's just the whole difference between, I suppose, this side of the world, Ireland in particular, and China, just the scale of everything. I, I would say you multiply everything by 300. Yeah. And then you see what China is dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. And, and it's, its role in, the, in the, the broader world. 
Tell me then, just taking it back to yourself, um, you're from County Cork and we knew each other in UCC. We studied engineering together and took different paths. You qualified as an engineer, civil engineer in Cork. And I think you worked at that for a few years here before deciding to um, apply to the Columbans. That's right, yeah. I grew up in Newtown Chandram, which is in the north of County Cork. And 1988, I qualified from UCC with a degree in civil engineering. And then for three years, I worked as a site engineer, mainly in Galway and Sligo. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I I was working outdoors. It it was similar to being on the farm at home with my family, being outdoors, uh, rain or snow or shine. And I I just, even though I enjoyed it and I was happy, uh, I still felt something stirring inside of me, calling me to a missionary life. I'd grown up in a family where the Far East magazine was read. Eventually I joined the the Columbans, the publishers of the Far East magazine. And for me, it it was a choice that I've never regretted. And I I received great encouragement from people along the way. And I I suppose all, all I can say is that for me, it has been a wise decision and one that I've never regretted. And what's interesting to me in, in, in some respects there, um, as you say, you graduated in 1988, you'd have been like almost in your early 20s and 88 going into 19, that very much a different Ireland than what had gone on 30, 40 years before. And I would guess even then there was a fall off in people who, who had a religious calling. And to that extent, it, would, it wouldn't have been as usual as it might have been previously. I mean... Did you feel yourself very religious prior to deciding to join up, or was it...? I, I, I would have always, you know, been a person of faith. Yeah. I would have always gone to Mass. You know, things would have happened in life over the years, even from childhood in our own locality, you know, that would really throw a person back. You know, maybe a young, young person dying and saying, gee, what is the meaning of life? Or, you know, what are the deeper issues or questions? So I, I suppose in some way that have had a formative effect upon me. And I always remember when I was leaving the building site in Galway and preparing to tell, especially the workmen on the building site, that, you know, people whom I'd worked yeah. with for eight, nine months, that I was getting ready to leave the building site <laughs> and that I was heading off to be a priest uh, with the missionary society. I expected that they'd almost laugh at me. But to their great credit, the encouragement was second to none. Fantastic. I read, and it has stayed with me ever since. And, you know, I suppose that that positive experience, even from an early stage, it encourages me to keep going and to, you know, to to feel at home with where I am. You, You refer to the fall off in vocations. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's obvious for everyone to see. You know, and I suppose in future, the church will be different. Nobody knows now what it will be like after 100 years. But, you know, people always come up with the bigger questions in life. You know, when something serious happens, like, you know, <laughs> it raises the question, you know, what is what is secure? What is the meaning of life? Where are we going? And, you know, I think that that happens at a personal level, at a community level. And, you know, I think in the last couple of years, we can say even at a global level level. Absolutely. And um, 
The other thing that strikes me about it, Dan, did you immediately, when you decided you had a calling, the missions that to, to go abroad, like how did that feature? I, I, I had an interest in what was happening in other places. I used to hear my grandmother talk about <laughs> one Colombian missionary that she knew, and I suppose that opened up almost a more direct contact uh, with faraway places. Uh, now, having said that, you know, I joined a missionary group. I mean, it was like going to work for the first day as an engineer. I didn't know yeah. what it was going to be like. But I, I suppose I, I have benefited greatly from the, the modern approach to formation of seminarians. I would sit down each two weeks with a priest with experience and reflect on my life. We're talking about getting to know me, understanding what has formed my life, uh, also coming to, to terms and come, finding peace about things that might not have gone well in my own earlier life. And now all of that would be obviously combined with the regular study of philosophy and theology, um, but in a way combining self-understanding with the hope of serving people better in ministry, knowing oneself in order to be able to serve other people better. And I suppose in some ways, when there was um, widespread allegiance to the church and when, when there was a lot of people having callings, that element of things would have been kind of taken for granted, whereas now those who, who would have a calling or a vocation, they're more aware of it and, and I suppose there's a better quality of a vocation from that point of view. I, I think there's... The opportunities are different now compared to before. I mean, the, the greater understanding of psychology and, you know, all that has happened in that area, that that comes to bear upon the church in terms of the formation of sisters and priests and lay missionaries, that there are other opportunities now that help people along the way to overcome their own personal hurdles, yeah. whether subconscious or otherwise. And so, did you come here to Dalgan Park to, to study then at that stage? Uh, we didn't study here, but I studied, we lived in the town of Maynooth and went to philosophy in Maynooth College. I studied my theology at a mission institute in Dublin, Kimmage Mission Institute, oh, yes. which was founded by a number of missionary groups. As a seminarian, uh, I, we had two years of overseas experience. I, I was in Japan for two years uh, and then... I was ordained in January of 99 and went to China 12 months after that. And you've been in China since? I've been in China since that time, yeah. And the prospect of going to China, I mean, first of all, well, you, you, you had a bit of experience in Japan, as you say. China, as we all know, nominally certainly is communist and it, it would have various challenges. First of all, how did you feel about the challenge of going there and what to expect and that kind of thing? In many ways, I didn't know what it would be like. I mean, I'd never been to China. I had nothing to compare it with. You know, I'd seen things on the news about it, but even at that time, there wasn't a huge amount about China on the news. And even one of the questions I had before going to China was, you know, can you be friends with people in China? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at this stage, it seems like a ridiculous question. But, you know, that's how, how little I knew about it before going. But, you know, once I got there and obviously started language study and, you know, you start at ABC and, you know, if you go to the shop and understand what the shopkeeper says, 
you're delighted. And you know, that begins to happen after two months or so. So I suppose language school allows a person to gradually get into a culture. You know, you're not expected to be doing it, getting, achieving a lot, but it, it gives you time, it gives you a chance to know what's happening locally. And, you know, gradually you build up a bit of confidence. And you go to a place like Wuhan and, you know, we would have certainly, again, going back traditionally for perhaps people of our age, whatever, you'd have this image of a, a church abroad. The, 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 there's a fair-sized congregation. There's also, in terms of a number of priests, perhaps some people associated with the church. But I, as I understand your scenario, it would have been, um, well, it was hardly one-man band, but there wasn't an awful lot more there. Would I be correct in that? No, I mean, where I live, the, the church has an act, active communities. I mean, there was a local diocese. When I went there, there was a local bishop, 25 Chinese priests, 40 Chinese sisters. So, I mean, I'm not <laughs> arriving there to run the church. Right. But we have a historical connection with that area. Our first group of missionaries went to China in 1920. So we have a lot of goodwill that was established by our predecessors now, our, our first group went there in 1920. Political changes, all of that meant that all missionaries were leaving China by 1949. Uh, the last of our people left in 1954. So, really, it's the local church that is the strong... They are the strong actors in, in their story now. But people like us can have a role there. And I suppose in many ways it's a supportive role. I'm involved with the church there. I know the people in the church. I, I'm involved in ministry to people with special needs. I can give retreats. Um, I can do work for the international community in the city. So there, there is a role there, but it's a supportive role. Right. And, for instance, in Wuhan, as you say, it's about 10 million. What kind of size of a Catholic population would you have there? Would you guess? In the city, I'd say the total Catholic population would be 3,000 people. So it's a very different reality. I mean, yeah. a city of 10 to 12 million people with four Catholic churches. So it's a totally different reality. Not a curiosity, would there be other Christian churches? You, you would have other Christian churches, yes. And, and would, would, would they be much bigger, any of them? Or would the, the, the other Christian churches would be substantial, yes. They right. would be bigger, yes. And the other thing I'm curious about... Such a small Catholic congregation. What's the history of it there? Like, was it always there, and it just survived through, through political changes and that, and, and and was maintained? Yeah, the, the the church was well established. You know, even in that area of China, long before our people even went yeah. there. I mean, they would have a tradition. I'd say in that part of China that goes back 250 years. The churches that are there at the moment, two of them would be over 120 years old. You know, fine churches like it, which, when the political changes took place and really people were no longer able to go to the churches, the church buildings survived in China very often because they were the biggest buildings around. They were good for, for warehousing or for factories. And then in the late 1970s, political change uh, came about again in China and economic reform was introduced by Deng Xiaoping and that meant uh, religious freedom. So church communities were given back the institutions, the properties, and then they renovated them and they opened them up 
and people came out, people who had been not coming to church, obviously, yeah. for 30 years, came out of the woodwork, literally, and regrouped. So, effectively, for about 30 years, it was completely underground, the, the existence I, I of... I suppose the, everything went quiet, we'd yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. might be the best way to right, say yeah, it. yeah. But, you know, the people were there, and in the late 1970s, they, they began to emerge again. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I've met people who have lived through those changes, and, you know, you, you'd, people who, I would say, experienced a lot of the challenges of life during those periods. You know, China, China you know, struggled with poverty for a long time oh, yeah. during the last 50 years of the 20th century. Um, but, you know, you might meet people who are faithful and dedicated and good, good with their families and, you know, welcoming to visitors... Uh, so, like, I, I would be so impressed by people who have experienced so, so many challenges and yet have their dignity, Yeah, you know, at the deepest level. And, again, going back to the Catholic Church as it is just in Wuhan, is it a scenario whereby it's a growing church or is it just maintaining the way it is? Would it be passed down through a certain number of families and communities kind of thing and not be actually growing or contracting? Yeah, I, I'd say it would be holding its own in terms of numbers. Yeah. In, in general, it would be the faith is passed down through the families. Now, occasionally then you'd meet somebody from the most un, unexpected background who has come in contact with the church and sees great meaning in, what the, in, the, in the gospel messages and says they want to be part of that. So you, you have the full spectrum, but like... The church in China is not growing exponentially yeah, in yeah. any way. Unlike like the parts of Africa, for instance, the church becomes a completely different dynamic there yeah, altogether. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, having said that, I mean, it is normal in China to meet people and they'd say, you know, we're the fifth generation of Catholics in our family, we're the seventh generation. And, you know, I, I would find, you know, they're, they're very much a minority but they would have a great unity amongst each other and they would have a great faithfulness to what has come down to them along the family tradition. And in a very big um, metropolis like that, would there be a geographic element to it or could they come from anywhere? Do you know what I mean in terms of communities? or anything? I suppose in general, in the city it would be, there's no real geographical yeah. <laughs> distinction, but many people would have come from rural villages and the rural villages, you would have pockets where right. you'd have strong Catholic presence in one village because it was, in general, it was one family for one village. The, the village could be named after the family. And, you know, if the head of the family said, this is what we're doing, well, then that this is what we're doing. <laughs> to know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Would there be many Westerners, for instance, working in the church in, in Wuhan? Not, not in, in Wuhan, no, no. I mean, in, in general, people like us, we have a very quiet presence among the church in China. But we, but we are well connected with people in the church. Now, having said that, like Wuhan, you know, it, it, okay, 10 to 12 million people. There are 55 universities in the city. In those universities, you probably have 10,000 international students, many of them being from Africa or India, countries that China has diplomatic ties with and is encouraging scholarships and building up their own relationships with those countries for, obviously, for long-term uh, interests. Um, so I, I would know quite a few people in that international community, mainly those who come to the church and... You know, so like they, they find their own home there as well because of that. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose, look, people have a lot of opinions on China and China's role in the world and uh, geopolitics and issues like human rights and all of that. There's absolutely no question about that. That's not your area and you're not a politician. But what I'm curious about, Dan, is um, one element to China that people speak about in, in, in a positive term is how many people have been lifted out of poverty? I mean, you've been over there now over 20 years. Would you even in that period notice changes in that respect? Yeah, I mean, the changes in China economically in the past 20 years have been immense. I mean, it's about 20 years ago that China became a member of the World Trade Organization. That allowed it to, you know, supply the world with <laughs> goods coming from factories that are all over the country. You know, and that brings people then, obviously, from the countryside to the cities to work in factories, their buy apartments. So, like, it is the, the lifting people out of poverty has coincided with people leaving the countryside to move to the cities. So, it, it has been a time when people, many people have left poverty, but like, there are many people who still live in very simple conditions. Outside the cities. Outside the cities, but also in the cities, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. living in fairly basic accommodation. I mean, it wouldn't be normal in our city, in Wuhan, to have central heating in a house. It wouldn't be normal. It's not. You, know, you might get snow two days of the year, but it's, we're considered to be in the south of the country, which means you don't get sent automatic central heating. So, like, people put on... They, they cope in the winter by putting on warm clothes. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, it's yeah. a big difference... Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And as you said, the Columbans have a long history in Asia in general and in China itself, I suppose. Just to mention it, as I, uh, as I said to you myself, my wife's uh, granduncle, Father Paddy Dermody, spent a lot of time out there. He spent most of his life out there, I think, and, and, and that's where I first heard about it. But it's, um, it's a fascinating history that the Columbans have in that area, you know, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, our first group went to China in 1920. Initially, we were known as the, and still are legally, the Maynooth Mission to China. And right. from 1918, we were publishing the Far East magazine. So we, our people settled in in China at that stage, obviously involved in various ways. Um, you know, something that would have bookmarked our experience in China was the huge floods of 1932 and the huge relief effort 
coordinated by Bishop Edward Galvin, our co-founder. There was a major flooding problem in 1932. Ah, yeah, there, there was a huge floods in 1932, and like, you know, there was millions displaced, and you know, it, it led to all kinds of displacement uh, and disruption, and you know, relief efforts were, I suppose, a bit chaotic in many areas. Uh, but like our our people and the Columban sisters were involved in relief efforts, uh, you know, providing the basics, really keeping people alive with food and medicine. By the late 1920s, we were appointing some people to the Philippines, also to Korea, uh, later to Japan, Myanmar. Um, I mean, in more recent decades, Chile, Peru, Fiji, and more recently to Pakistan. So I, I suppose our while our legal name still is Maynooth Mission to China, and we're known as the Columbans by many people, our, our focus did go to other areas as well as time moved on. And, you know, I suppose that that's what happens over a century, you know, that other things develop and other interests emerge and, priorities. And with a lot of political upheavals in various parts of Asia, going back over the decades, including the likes of uh, Korea, there was, um, I remember myself researching at one stage, a number of Columbans who died, uh, Irish men, they're all men, uh, after North Korea invaded South Korea around 1950. And those, as you said, there was changes in China and th 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 there were some problems there as well, obviously, for religious people as well. But I, as one fellow colloquially said it to me, um, I think it always applies, hardy men, the Columbus. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's true of any missionary group. You know, people yeah. who go and settle in in a place and make, make their lives in that place. A, a connection develops with the people. You know, and you become friends with the people. Of course. You visit their homes and, you know, you get to know them in their own place. And even in the most humblest of settings, you know, you, you realise there's a dignity among the people, <laughs> even if they're struggling for the basics in life. And I, I suppose those bonds keep people connected then. And I think the loyalty develops out of that, obviously strengthened by a, a, a faith perspective. And, you know, letting go of that wouldn't be easy for many people. So letting go and returning home to retire can be a big challenge for people. You can imagine. But, you know, I suppose if you're talking about resilience and dedication, I think it's connected to the relationship with the local people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They feel a responsibility and, and what have you after a while, very understandable. Yeah, and, and there's a friendship there. Yeah, you know, of course. That even maybe transcends the responsibility. Yeah, yeah. You know, that it, you feel at home among them and, you know... You share their lives for 10, 15 years, and then, you know, you, you, you experience a welcome. You're invited to their homes for meals. And I mean, literally some homes where you're sitting down at the table, but you're sitting on a bed because that's the only seat available. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. you have that in modern-day Wuhan. <laughs> yeah. Come back to Wuhan. Of course, as the whole world now knows, that's where the, the COVID pandemic started. Um, did you ever, in the early stages or at any stages of it, have thoughts of that, you know, maybe you should just go home, that perhaps you'd be safer there as a result of it? 
the option was there to come home uh, during the first couple of weeks because I think it was the British and the French arranged flights and Irish people could get on them, but I, I, I didn't feel any need to leave. I mean, fine, we were in a lockdown situation, but the lockdown was so tight, I couldn't meet anybody. So I, I was quite confident that I couldn't actually catch, catch the virus, even though I was in the city where it started. So I, I felt fine to stay there. And, you know, each morning, thankfully, I could go out for a walk. I, I was able to go downstairs each morning from my apartment at 5.30. I could get an hour and 20 minutes of a walk. I'd be w walking up the stairs. Were you allowed to do that? No, that it, it was I mean, possible. Citizenry people in general? It did. I mean, it was so early in the morning, there was nobody around. Right. And, you know, no, there was nobody asking a question when I would be. I would be always within the housing compound. Right. So I wasn't out on the street yeah. as such. And, you know, I, I'd be back into my apartment by 7 a.m. And that was it then until 5.30 the next morning. But it was fine. Yeah. God, and how long did that particular lockdown last? We had from? 11 weeks of a lockdown. And I would say, you know, we, we all knew that the lockdown was finishing on a particular day. And I expected everybody to be out almost like at a street party. There was very few people out. And there was four days later, and there was very few people out. And a, a priest friend of mine, a Chinese priest, he visited me and on day four, which was actually Easter Sunday. All churches were still closed. Uh, he told me he was coming to the city to bring somebody to the railway station. I invited him over for evening meal, and he arrived in. And before we even sat down for the meal, he asked me, would I like to go to the countryside for a few days? So I said, this would be a nice idea <laughs> to get out of the city. Absolutely. And I went out there for what he said was a few days, and I stayed for four months. Right. And it was a great counterbalance to 11 weeks of being alone for breakfast, lunch, and evening meal. Oh, I can imagine. And, and, and a bit more relaxed, I presume, out uh, in the countryside. Very different, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, you know, same country, same province, but just the, the experience of the lockdown was very different there. Was it very lonely? I, I, I didn't find it lonely. I, I didn't. Um, no, I, I would maybe think that part of the reason for that is that I, I've received a lot of help from our missionary group over the last 30 years, you know, to be reflective, uh, to be attentive to one's feelings, uh, to take care of oneself. And... I, I found that when the pandemic came, when the lockdown came, I, I was able to put a schedule in place during the day. It involved regularity. And, you know, I, I, I was still communicating by email with our own people on several issues that would normally be done anyway. I had a regular life of prayer and I had my daily exercise and... What was helpful for me, I began to write about the experience and it was published on one uh, Catholic website in England. So it, it, I, I, I had a schedule to keep me going and to just, I, I didn't find it lonely. And at no point you decided, well, maybe I'll head for the old side. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I didn't, no, no. And I mean, I suppose the way it was unfolding in China and the numbers were increasing, it became obvious that, you know, what was happening in Italy, that this was going to arrive to Ireland as well. 
and like it did then around St. Patrick's Day of they 2020, don't. So, which was what, maybe two months after we yeah. went into lockdown. So, you know, I, I, people probably had to face the same issues here about loneliness and isolation as, as anyone in China did. And was there an awareness in Wuhan that this was something that started there and spread to the whole world, or did that have any impact locally? Yeah, I mean, it, it was quite... Uh, yeah, everybody in Wuhan was aware that that's where it started, and everyone in China was aware. And, you know, even there was... a Yeah, it, it, it was obvious. And I suppose the focus was on Wuhan, but, I mean, other parts of China, you know, also had lockdowns. I mean, it, it wasn't just one city. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was, um, and there's been all sorts of stuff about how it might have originated and yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. And um, again, political situations lead to certain restrictions and what have you. But China's come out the other side of it now, like everywhere else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose one of the benefits of the lockdown, you know, when it happened was it did contain the virus. Yeah, you know, and I suppose that's <laughs> that's the whole strategy behind the lockdown in any country that you stop the infection from spreading. And I, I suppose, like in China as well, it, it allowed people time enough to wait until the vaccines became available, and they did become available. And you know, I, I got three of the vaccines uh, in China when they became available, and you know, it was all recorded and every. Three days then, I'd say for two and a half years, we were doing PCR tests to make sure that we weren't... The whole population was doing PCR tests, at least in Wuhan. Yeah. And without that result on your smartphone, you couldn't get on public transport. So, like, it, it was an incredible experience also of how technology and smartphones and PCR tests were all combined into a seamless system. The logistics of the whole thing in, oh, yeah. in, in terms of the population. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, you know, you, you ask, you know, China has come out of it. It, it. Yes, it has come out of it. Um, I suppose there are questions about the economy, you know, the economic yeah. effects. Now, I mean, I don't know the exact details. There are but the questions about the economic effects. There are also global cycles and what have you, and you don't know yes, to what yes. extent that's part of what's... Um, what's happening as well like yeah yeah and so like i suppose that's where it is at the moment and i suppose when china faces big issues they are big issues you see you know i mean the government of ireland you know very often has to face headaches of it you yeah. know because of whatever is going on but like in china the scale of all of those is increased by you know about a oh, factor sure, of, of 300 you know yeah. so like they they do face issues obviously whether it is political or, yeah. you know, I mean, at times I would oft, we would often say, you know, in a country like China with 1,400 million people to provide breakfast, lunch and evening meal for that population, it's a big logistical undertaking every day. <laughs> what is the course? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And would it be fair to say you nearly feel more at home there now? I, I mean, I, I enjoy living in China. I, it's great to be there. I would be disappointed, I suppose, if I were told that I was coming back to Ireland. <laughs> now, at the same time, I have to say, I, it's great to be home. I, I've enjoyed being home. Um, you know, it's great to come home, meet family and friends and meet the Columbans here in Dalgan Park. You know, go, go to Komogi matches and go to Hurley matches in my own area. 
and enjoy all of that. Um, but yet, when I when I go back and settle into my own area in Wuhan, I, I feel quite happy there. People say, this, you know, 20th century was the American um, century and the 21st will be the Chinese century. You know, I mean, it's certainly... It's a place that is looming larger in all our lives, even this the other side of the globe as well. And it's it's evolving all the time, I'd say. It is like, and again, I suppose it goes back. I, I think a huge factor in that is population size. If you have a population of more than a thousand million people, you know that, that they are going to have a huge effect on the future of the world. You can't talk about the future of the world without that group simply because of their, their, their great number. Like you talk about the 20th century, century being the American century. And I suppose I, I pay attention to things I hear that are connected with construction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like in 2008, the economic crisis hit this side of the world. And, you know, the economy collapsed in many places. In China, they began to invest in public infrastructure. On an, even they were doing it already, but they put more into it. They've a high-speed train system now that's incredible in terms of its scale. Uh, all major cities have an underground system like the city of London, and you know high-rise apartments being built at a huge rate, perhaps too much. But like there, there is a statistic I think that reflects the difference between what is happening in China now and maybe the last century. In a three-year period after 2008, three years, there was more concrete poured in that three-year period than in the United States for the entire 20th century. My God. So three years in China versus 100 years yeah. in the US. Like, like, how do you explain that? Well, yeah. like, it's because of the, you know, the huge movement in one particular direction. Um, now, what will it be like after 20 more years? I, I'm not sure. But there, there is a huge focus now on education in China. I mean, people will do anything to get their child educated well in high school and get them into university. So th there are many, many people getting university education. And if you go to any of the universities in this country, you will find a Chinese population. They're linked up. Many of them... Many of the universities here are linked with China. Yeah. They have joint programs. Some students come here for two years or three years. Some do one year. Um, but again, it just shows how education has moved ahead in China and they're trying to connect with other parts of the world through education. Yeah, just when you were talking about the concrete there, I said, you can take the man out of engineering. <laughs> can't take the engineer out of the man. Um, all very true. One other thing, Dan, I suppose that people would suggest or, or wonder about, that economic power, that political power that's now emanating from China. Some people fear it. In your experience, are those kind of fears justified? It's difficult to know. I mean, I don't have the answers. Mm. Um, I, I suppose... One way I would look at it, if something is happening on an international level at this side of the world, 
very often we're, we, our ears are up to know what does the White House think about it. Like if you were to turn it around and say, with, with events on an international scale, in the years ahead, will we be lifting our ears to see what Beijing thinks about it? It's a big change. It is. It is. And if it happens, it would be a big adjustment for our way of looking at the world. Now, I, I'm not sure, will it ever get to that stage or when will it get to that stage? Um, I mean, the political system in China is very different to what's normal in, in the Western world. I mean, that, that we all know that. Yeah. And there are, you know, political changes taking place in China, you know, even in recent years. I would say China is finding its way forward in terms of its place in the world, trying to, you know, negotiate its way forward with other countries. I mean, this week, you know, there are discussions between the United States and China about economic reliance or economic boundaries or all of that, because basically the two countries depend on each other in one way or another economically. Um, so I, 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 I suppose my own hope, obviously, is that China would make a positive contribution to the world. Yeah. It's a different world. And Dan, thank you very much for talking to us today. I think it's been very interesting. And um, you're heading back there yourself and you're, you're, uh, you're looking forward to spending the rest... I suspect you're looking forward to spending the rest of, you, of your career, certainly before retirement. There. I, I'm happy to be there and we'll take it very <laughs> one good. year at a time. Dan Troy, thanks very much for talking to us today. Thank you, Mick. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, as always, folks, and thank you very much for listening.